from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast. My name is Alyssa Carroll, and I am the host and the creator of at serial underscore killing on Instagram, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous, vile, and disturbing behaviors. Special thanks to some of my patrons, of course. Elena, Aaron, Katoris, Catherine, Sam, Linda, Janice, Hammer, Katarina, Alithia, Teresa, Sarah, Sophie, Nanette, Two Emmas, Emily, Gabrielle, Galen, Cassandra, Bree, David, John, and my girl Judy. Thank you so much. You are truly appreciated. So this one is a revisit. This week's podcast will be on Alexander Pachushkin. Now, if it were considered socially acceptable to have favorite offenders with regards to true crime, well, then Alexander would be in my top five. Now, that's not to say that I'm okay with the things that he did because, well, I'm not, not by any stretch of the imagination. But I believe some things he experienced in his childhood could have a direct correlation with his later behavior. There's no real way of knowing 100%, of course, but in my opinion, there is a strong case for him not being born to kill. His case just seems much more black and white compared to most serial killers, so without further ado, let's get into it. Alexander Pachushkin was known as the chessboard killer and the Beatsa Park maniac. He was born in the northeastern part of Moscow in the Soviet Union, April 9th, 1974. So as we do, let's get into some history for that region at the time. The Soviet Union from 1964 to 1982 is known as the Brezhnev era. The economy was great and people were doing well for themselves. But as things often go, there was beginning to be a gradual shift in the economy. Social and political issues were mounting, thus ushering in the era of stagnation. According to the BBC, in 1968, Soviet and Warsaw Pact troops invaded Czechoslovakia. This was a calculated action so that they could then set the precedence that communist countries had the right to intervene other communist states if they felt their communist policies were being threatened, all working toward an international communist movement. The next year, the Soviet Union and China had an undeclared war over the border between the two countries called the Sino-Soviet border conflict. The biggest conflict was about where the exact line border lines were with regards to a river. The Soviet border service were reporting that the Chinese military were becoming very active in that region. So, of course, the Soviet Union increased their military numbers as a result. 
Before long, there were hundreds of thousands of men and over 100 medium-range missiles pointed at China. However, China had already successfully tested its first nuclear weapon. Needless to say, tensions rose quickly. Political leaders on both sides realized the danger and began taking steps to minimize the quickly escalating matter. The Soviet prime minister flew and met with his Chinese counterpart at the Beijing airport. Both agreed to send ambassadors to the disputed region to negotiate, but this dispute would not technically end until 2003. Then in 1972, while the Soviet was in a border dispute, they were also at odds with the United States. The Cold War was in full swing, and tensions between the two countries were also very high. But negotiations began between the two superpowers in Finland, and the Strategic Arms Limitation Talks Agreement, or SALT-1, was signed. This agreement would stop the creation of new ballistic missile launchers, limited the number of missiles they had pointed at each other, as well as limit the number of missile deployment sites. Nixon was the first United States president to actually visit Moscow. And in 1974, the year that Alexander was born, the Soviet Union also agreed to ease its trade policy restrictions so that it could return to most favored nation trade status with the United States. So as you can see, the Soviet Union had a lot going on. And then I tried to find, what, but couldn't really, to see what the cost of living was around the time that he was born. And I think that might be due to the fact that the economy was up and down, and it also depended on what part of Russia you lived in. But from the info we do have about his living conditions, it is quite reasonable to assume that he did not come from money. Alexander Petrushkin's mother, Natasha Petrushkina, lived near Bitsa Park, which is a large area of forest with creeks and clearings. To compare New York's Central Park, which is about 843 acres, Bitsa Park is 2,700 acres. It is massive. Surrounding the park are blocks and blocks of rundown apartment buildings standing side by side where tens of thousands of people live, sort of like the projects. The buildings were several stories and also the first in a large-scale public housing project. This area was described as grim, rusted, and called Zopamira, or pardon, asshole of the world. Needless to say, it was not a neat, tidy, or considered super safe neighborhood. Now, his mother lived in the same two-bedroom apartment on the fifth floor of a nothing special building since she was 11 years old back in 1963. People who lived in these public housing buildings rarely left, and for the most part, there were far too many people stuffed in each apartment. Natasha grew up, got married, and at 22 years old, had a baby boy that she named Alexander. When the baby was only nine months old, her husband abandoned their little family and she began to raise him as a single mother. She liked where she and Alexander lived because it was so close to the forest and the park. 
Their neighbors spoke of Alexander as a baby and a toddler, saying he was a happy child, always pleasant and polite, and that he truly loved animals. One story was told that a neighbor found little Alexander on some back steps, completely beside himself and crying because he had lost his pet cat. But he was described as quiet but very sociable. So all of that changed when he was just four years old. His mother took him to the playground to play. He was swinging on a swing set when he suddenly fell off backwards. And then while he was sitting back up, the swing came back and slammed into the front of his forehead. So the bones and the skulls of toddlers are not as thick and as strong as adults. The head injury was severe enough that it was thought to have damaged his prefrontal cortex. So let's talk about what that means. The prefrontal cortex is in the very front portion of your brain, just behind your forehead, and is part of the frontal lobe. We use our frontal lobes every day, and it is responsible for our ability to plan complex cognitive behavior, how we express our personalities, how we make decisions, and how we control our social behavior. Basically, this part of our brain organizes thoughts and actions based on our internal goals. So then the prefrontal cortex is sort of the area that takes care of executive functioning, which helps us differentiate and organize conflicting thoughts, what we decide is good or bad, deciding which things are similar compared to differences, consequences of good and bad behaviors, being able to predict the outcomes of our actions and being able to control our urges so that we display socially acceptable behaviors. It processes our feelings of shame, guilt, compassion, and empathy. Now damage to this area, even if it is slight, can result in an impaired ability to make good choices and recognize what the consequences will be for undesirable behaviors. It can cause an increase in irritability and make controlling and regulating our behavior much more difficult. There is a marked increase in impulsive behaviors and lack of self-control. In other words, it's not good. So it isn't surprising that after Alexander experienced this head injury, his personality changed. His peers and early teachers stated he had become aggressive and started showing a lack of impulse control. However, the injury didn't affect his overall very high intelligence at all, and he was in fact an expert chess player. But when his behavior did a complete 180, the kids began to bully him horribly, and when talking about him, they'd say, quote, and pardon me, that retard, end quote. He began to isolate more and more, and his temper became increasingly hostile. So his mother decided to put him in a school for children with learning disabilities. Now, I realize why she did that. His behavior had become very difficult, and the bullying intensified that. And we all know teachers have enough on their plates as it is. But he did not have a learning disability. This change in schools affected his self-esteem greatly and, in turn, only made his anger and lack of impulse control much worse. His mother didn't know what to do to help her son, whom she loved and adored very much. 
Now, Alexander's maternal grandfather decided to step in. He knew the boy needed a strong male role model in his life since Alexander's father had abandoned him and his mother when he was just a baby. His grandfather clearly saw that Alexander was highly intelligent and that the school he was attending was not going to foster that intelligence. The school focused more on dealing with the actual learning disabled kids and Alexander needed more of a challenge. Alexander was also not involved in any outside activities, often keeping to himself inside his home. So his grandfather moved him in with him and began fostering the boy's talents. He was an adolescent at this time, and he knew his grandson absolutely loved playing chess, and he had an extraordinary talent for it. So his grandfather took him down to Bitsa Park so that he could challenge the old men that sat at the tables to play chess every day, and he nearly dominated every game. Other people would come to watch the boy genius chess player beat the old coots who gossiped and bragged about how good they were. Now this must have given Alexander a much needed boost of confidence. He had found an outlet to help him manage his aggressive tendencies through the competitiveness of the game. He got a lot of positive attention from the sport and was finally feeling somewhat happy. And then suddenly, when Alexander was a teenager, his grandfather died. As you can imagine, this devastated the teen greatly. And though he loved his mother completely, his grandfather had been so important in his life. He had understood what Alexander needed. His grandfather was his true best friend. So he was forced to move back into his mother's apartment and go back to the public school he had been bullied at so badly. He became deeply depressed, withdrawn, and isolated. He was often seen walking his dog through the park alone. Then, not long after, his dog died. This made his depression even worse as Alexander absolutely loved his dog. The devastation of the two losses was more than he could stand. To try to keep his aggressions and anger under control and also to help numb the pain in his heart, he began to drink vodka and a lot of it. He was still able to play chess both at home and in the exhibition games in Beats Park, but now he was joining the other men in drinking vodka, though unlike them, he could play without being greatly affected by the alcohol. When he wasn't playing chess, he began to lift weights and work out. His body became strong and quite muscular, but he used his size to bully and intimidate younger children. Of course, the girls began to notice him as he had grown into quite a handsome teenager. He really didn't seem to pay any attention to the girls either. And then Alexander began taking a video camera with him, crossing paths with children, then filming himself threatening them. Once he held a young child by their leg upside down and said to the camera, quote, you are in my power now. I'm going to drop you from the window and you will fall 15 meters to your death." End quote. Of course, the child was terrified. He would then watch the videos over and over, which gave him a great sense of power. 
1992, when Alexander Pachushkin was 18 years old, he began following the trial of Soviet Union's worst serial killer, Andrei Chikatilo. It is thought that Alexander became fascinated with the murderer. Also during this time, watching his threatening videos were no longer helping him control his violent urges. His first murder soon followed. Alexander later said his then-girlfriend, Olga, had dumped him to date a friend of his. And as I'm sure anyone can understand, he became enraged at this. So he lured his unsuspecting friend up into a building, strangled the young man to death, then threw his body out of a fifth-floor window. His second murder in the same year was when he invited another school friend to go on a, quote, killing expedition. Pachushkin said that they were going to go out to find someone to kill. Now his friend mistakenly thought that it was just a joke and went along the walk with Alexander who quickly saw his friend wasn't taking it seriously. So he murdered him instead. Alexander was questioned about the murders but there just wasn't enough evidence and the police let him go. It isn't known if this scared him enough to stop him for some years, but he did not kill again until 2011. During this quiet time, he got a job at a local grocery store and was leading a very normal, average life. He had relationships with women and even thought about marriage and a family or toyed with the idea, but he just wasn't able to calm his mind enough to settle down. Then, nearly 10 years after his first murders, he started killing again. No one knows for sure what the catalyst was, but what we do know is that Alexander began luring older men who had alcohol problems by asking them to drink with him. He would then get them to follow him into a more remote part of Beetsa Park, telling them he had buried his beloved dog in a certain spot and wanted them to drink in remembrance with him then he would murder them. Sometimes he would throw them down into a very deep sewage pit that were like 30 feet deep and there was a whole network of these huge pipes that ran underground for managing the city's waste. Now these victims would drown due to the rushing water below or the impact from the drop would kill them. Some he strangled, but most often he would bludgeon them in the head with a hammer until he split their skulls. He would then take the empty vodka bottle and shove it into a gaping wound in their head. He would also always attack from behind to keep from getting blood on his clothes. At least that's what he said. I disagree though. The act of creating that level of trauma is going to create blood splatter no matter which way the victim is facing. To me, and this is just my opinion, it made it easier to not have to look the person in the face. Being able to see their face and possible shock and horror at the moment of realization, to see that in their eyes is very personal. Alexander would have had to really connect that personal aspect to his ending that person's life and he didn't want that. But again, this is just my opinion. Most of his victims were elderly men whom he knew usually from the park, the neighborhood, or from chess games. Some were homeless, 
bums, but only a few of his victims were women and children. One female victim had tiny stakes hammered into her skull and around her eyes. For Alexander, there was no sexual element to his murders. Ten of his victims lived in the same apartment complex that he did, and yet no one suspected it was him at all. In the Soviet Union, the families had to wait three days before they could file a missing persons report with the local police. That alone is a serious issue. But also the police were known for being corrupt. They drank, accepted bribes, and rarely investigated the reports. The neighbors began to speculate what was happening to the people that disappeared. Could it be the mafia, which was a very real thing in Moscow? All they knew was that people were disappearing and everyone was scared. Now, two of his victims survived. The first was a girl he had taken out on a date. He took her out to the park, then shoved her into a deep sewage pit. But she managed to swim over to an unused pipe in the pitch blackness and find a way to climb out. She went to the police, but they never investigated. The second to survive was a 14-year-old boy whom Alexander had thought he had killed by strangulation. The teen reported him to the police, but again, he was ignored. But outside of a small handful, his victims were all older elderly men. Experts who have studied Pachushkin say that the reason he chose this age group above all was out of a feeling of abandonment by his father and the death of his beloved grandfather. Alexander said that he chose alcoholics and drug addicts because he knew they would be easy and they wouldn't be missed. Most serial killers take some form of a souvenir as their trophy after they murder their victim. Jewelry, ID cards, an article of clothing, taking Polaroids, and sometimes even keeping actual body parts. These help the serial killer remember the details of the murder to help them keep the fantasy alive in their mind. But Alexander didn't do that. Instead, he would, after a fresh kill, go home and open his small notebook and write a number into a square. You see, he had drawn a chessboard in this notebook. That's 64 squares, and he intended to fill every one of them with a mark. The locals who lived in that area near the park began to think the murderer must be someone everyone knew. They would gather on their balconies and gossip about who it could potentially be as they watched their neighbors walk by on the sidewalks below. But there was an overall feeling of hopelessness because they knew their circumstances. They were poor Russian people living in crumbling urban government housing and they knew or at least felt they didn't matter. In no way did they ever suspect that it was Alexander, who they actually called Sasha, which, by the way, is a common nickname for Alexander in Russia. He was quiet and a loner, but everyone knew him as a person who absolutely loved animals, who kept his steady job at the grocery store and was pleasant nearly always. This idea of what kind of person he was was exactly how he got his victims to go with him into the park. A good portion of them knew who he was and walked with him willingly, happily. For one of his victims, Alexander waited and watched his intended target for over an hour, waiting for people to leave the park and go in for the evening. 
Once his victim was alone, he approached the older man, plied him with alcohol, and they went for a walk into the woods. Petushkin asked the man that if he had one wish, what would it be? The man replied that he'd like to be able to stop drinking. Alexander replied, quote, I promise you, today will be the day you stop drinking, end quote. He then bashed the man's head in with a hammer and shoved his body into a sewage pit. He knew if the head injury didn't kill him, well, the impact would. For five years, his murders became more and more brutal. He stopped bothering to try to conceal the bodies once he was done. But then, in June of 2006, his bravado finally backfired. One of the managers at the grocery store that Alexander worked at said that he was a good-natured employee and was polite and well-mannered with the customers. And his co-workers all agreed. So then one day he decided to ask a woman whom he worked with to take a stroll in the park with him. She agreed, went home, and left a note for a relative with Petrushkin's telephone number on it, and out she went. Alexander later stated that they had decided to have a picnic in the park and they walked to a secluded area. As she mulled around, he said he sat there for quite a while, trying to decide if he wanted to kill her or not. He said that he eventually decided to kill her because he convinced himself that if he didn't, he would not be able to stand that thought later. He took a hammer out of his bag he carried and bludgeoned her in the back of the head. He then took a bottle of vodka that was not entirely empty and shoved it into the back of her skull. When her body was found later, they searched her home and found the note. The number was traced to Alexander. The police then watched surveillance footage of him and saw him with the woman the day that she died at a metro station. 33-year-old Alexander was then arrested. At first, he denied everything, but it didn't take long for him to change his mind. He confessed to 63 murders, but was ultimately found guilty of 48. Now, before we get into the trial and sentencing, here are some quotes from him. Quote, For me, life without murder is like a life without food. I felt like the father of all those people, since it was I who opened the door for them to another world. The first murder is like the first love. It's unforgettable. The closer the person is to you, the more pleasant it is to kill him. Some people are born only to be killed by me. End quote. During the trial, he was put on display in a reinforced glass cage-like box for the whole courtroom to see. He sat there, mostly looking down at his feet, but he also paced or swayed like a caged animal. They asked him if he had any regrets. He said, quote, Yes, I regret you arrested me so early. I was planning to murder another woman in two days' time. End quote. He showed no remorse at all. His trial lasted six weeks, and the jury took only three hours to come to a unanimous decision. On Monday, October 29, 2007, the judge stated, quote, 
In view of the seriousness of the crimes committed and the exceptional danger to society of the defendant himself, and in order to establish social justice and prevent new crimes, the court considers it necessary to sentence Pachushkin for committing especially grave crimes to life imprisonment." End quote. The judge then asked him if he understood his sentence, to which Alexander replied, quote, I'm not deaf. I understood. End quote. He was then sent to a Siberian jail called Polar Owl. The first 15 years of his sentence, he will be forced to be in solitary confinement. So as of this recording, he only has one more year in solitary. He states that if he were released, he would immediately kill at least two people, just to calm his nerves. Then again, he also says he has devoted all of his time to reading about philosophy and in 2016 became engaged to one of his serial killer groupie fans, though the prison has stopped letting them communicate through letters. So Alexander is classified as a process-focused serial killer, meaning he derives pleasure from the pain and torture his victims feel. It's in the experiencing the torture and slow death of his victims that he craves. Then within the types of processed focused killers, he is subcategorized as a power seeking motive type. That means he likes the feeling of being in charge of his victims, whether they live or die, to play God, if you will. He was diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder, which displays as a need for admiration and a lack of empathy. They have a high level of self-importance and want to be ultimately successful, to be admired. They often feel superior to everyone else. So, in summation, I don't think that Alexander was born to kill. Could he have narcissistic tendencies naturally? Sure. He was, by all accounts, highly intelligent and a chess master. It isn't uncommon for people of that caliber to let that go to their heads, so to speak, but I think it was the unfortunate brain injury that impacted his personality, impulse control, and aggression that he was just not able to control. But tell me guys, what do you think? You can leave a comment below if you're watching or DM me on Instagram at serial underscore killing. You can email me at serialkillinginstagram at gmail.com. Consider becoming a patron. And as always, thank you so much for listening because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me and I really appreciate that. Thank you and have a great day.